0: I kind of like being the underdog and I like being underestimated. I think it's a lot easier to be underestimated and feel like you have fight and grit and you can prove yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome
1: to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you are a frequent listener here, thank you. We appreciate your loyalty. And if you're new, welcome. Each week, we work here to demystify success. I know, it's a weird word, doesn't mean everything to everyone, but the idea is happiness in the work that you do in your life. And we go about finding that by speaking to the world's most influential women across all different industries. And the conversations go beyond the resume, from decision-making to trade-offs to those pivotal moments that shape your careers and your lives. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. Okay, listeners, we have a real treat today. With us in the hot seat is Katrina Lake. She's the founder and CEO of Stitch Fix. She's the youngest woman ever to take a company public. You were... 34 years old. That's right. When Stitch Fix went public. It's listed on the NASDAQ. That was in 2017. And in less than 10 years, she's grown Stitch Fix from an idea to a company that generates more than one and a half billion dollars in sales and serves more than three million clients. You've been named one of Forbes's richest self-made women. And you're also a mother of two. You're on the board of Glossier and Grubhub. And you're a guest on the season 11 of Shark Tank. Welcome, Katrina, to No Limits. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I love that you're here. Also, by the way, there is a Minnesota connection here, and I can't <laughs> I can't not mention the Minnesota connection. Katrina went to high school in Minneapolis.
0: That's right. I did. Go to the state fair every year still. What's
1: your favorite thing to eat on a stick?
0: Um, The Pronto pup is really good. That's I really like, like the pickle on a stick. Oh controversial, yeah, controversial, but I like that one. Why is it
1: controversial? I don't know. Some people it's not are pride? like, "Why
0: would you go all the way to the state fair to
1: have a pickle?" <laughs> the Pronto pup, by the way, is basically like the hot dog, like the corn dog. It's like isn't a corn it?
0: dog, but for it's. But they're very particular that it's not a corn dog; it's a Pronto pup.
1: I wonder why that is. I mean, I obviously I go to the state fair, but I've never investigated the difference between a Pronto should, pup and it, a it would corn be dog. Great investigative journalism. <laughs> (laughs) I, by the way, like the cheese on a stick, deep fried cheese. Oh, yes, the
0: cheese curds, Mm, the cookies, those are really good. (laughs) Um,
1: But enough about food, also another favorite topic of mine. Let's talk about you and your childhood, your parents. Was starting a company, was that something that
0: your family, if you had said as a kid, I want to start a company, would that surprise your parents? I did a lot of crazy things. I don't know that anything necessarily surprised my parents, but it was, I don't think that they would have predicted this path. I had a great childhood. I was in a bilingual, bicultural household. My mom is an immigrant from Japan. My dad was a doctor. He's a liver, he's a liver transplant doctor. He's at the University of Minnesota. My mom is a public school teacher. So, you know, they really were like education first, Mm -hmm. like very invest in your education. But they also were, I would say, like more on the academic side and not necessarily on the like capitalist entrepreneurial side. I like as a kid, I didn't have a lemonade stand. Like I didn't have dreams of being an entrepreneur. What? Um, You can't be an
1: entrepreneur if you didn't have a lemonade stand. I'm really sorry to break it to you, Katrina.
0: (laughs) I read all these fun anecdotes about like so and so had this, you know, Cookie business, growing up or whatever. She carried whatever. her little
1: briefcase everywhere. Yep, yeah,
0: nope, not me. What um, would you
1: want? Did you have a dream as a kid of a dream job? I think
0: I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and you know, my dad is a doctor. I had a lot yeah. of respect for the profession he was in. I liked math and science. And then I went to college. I was pre med. I even took the MCAT. I think it, the way it kind of happened was I was volunteering, um, in a hospital, kind of like a hospital lab environment, and I, I just had this moment of you know i i didn't feel super comfortable around like bodily fluids and just the atmosphere of being a doctor and um and i just had this moment of feeling like this I don't know that this is the work environment for me. Like mm. if you think about you're going to spend like 12 hours a day someplace, like I didn't feel super comfortable like wearing latex gloves and scrubs. And um, and I just had this moment of feeling like this just doesn't feel right. And so I postponed even applying to medical school and I had done an economics degree, which was kind of, I don't want to say that was luck, but it was like I had taken some economics classes and I was like, I love this. This is like math and the real world put together and it was interesting. And so um, I leaned on that and took a job in consulting. And that was really meant to be a stopgap of like, I can do this for two years, learn about business, and then I can apply to medical school. Um, but I really just got sucked into the business world and really loving this idea of like building businesses and understanding what makes, you know, ultimately consumers and people tick and, you know, building businesses around that. And so um, that was kind of how I stumbled into this entrepreneurship path. Did you like consulting? Some elements of it I loved. I loved the people that I worked with. Um I mean, and actually I met my husband through that. And so um, we didn't date when we were working together, but you worked with really smart, interesting people and you worked on really interesting problems for companies. And so I got to work with like, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to name the companies, but I worked with like eBay and I worked with other big retailers that were in the brick and mortar world. That's with cool. That were a restaurant clients Because you
1: don't always get to work with, so I started in investment banking out of college, also met my husband, also <laughs> waited to date him until he quit. Uh-huh. Um, but I feel like consulting and banking are very similar postgraduate programs where there's a lot of young people because they have a specific program where right. analysts or, you know, whatever the title of the program is, you come straight out of college and you get a lot of access. Right. But not a lot. I didn't love them. I hated it, actually, to be <laughs> honest. I really hated it because the hours are very intense. Well, and that's why
0: I quit was really the hours. Like yeah. I had the same experience. It was like, I love the work and I it's so interesting and you get to meet so many companies and great people, but I had the exact same experience where in the end, um, like I quit right at my two-year mark, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, I don't know if you're like, yep, yep, I quit right at two years because um, I was working like 90 hours a week or something and traveling a lot. And, and I just, like, I couldn't, you know, it wasn't the lifestyle for me. Did you have a plan when you quit? Um I already had a job lined up. Like my thought process was I came to love business and I especially retail apparel I felt like was super interesting where there was a huge market and no one was really innovating in any kind of interesting way. And so I was hoping actually to get a job at like whatever company would be the future of retail and I spent a lot of time kind of Looking and, you know, applying for jobs and didn't really find that. And so I actually worked, I applied to work at a venture fund thinking, okay, like if I don't see the future of retail in today's retailers, then maybe it's you know, something that's going to be up and coming. And so I applied to venture capital jobs thinking like this is a way that I can meet an entrepreneur that I can then join. I met hundreds of entrepreneurs and um, I met Polyvore as an example. I met with um, this guy, Charlie Graham, who started a company called Shop It To Me. And so, you know, I met a few that were in the space that were doing something interesting. But ultimately what a venture, the venture world actually showed to me was that like all these people who are entrepreneurs were actually like not that quote unquote qualified. Like they were all, you know, I kind of felt like what I, why would I start a business? What qualifications do I have? I've never, like I had never even managed a person before I started Stitch Fix. And so, um, to, you know, I was like, what, what capabilities or skills do I have? And I realized that like everybody else. Doesn't really have skills or capabilities either. They just have an idea and ambition, and um, and so for me, it actually provided inspiration that hey, if if I if I wanted to be part of the future of retail, that like I could create it myself.
1: So talk a little bit. I, I feel like Stitch Fix is so ubiquitous now; people know it. But talk a little bit about what it is today versus what you thought it might be at back then.
0: I mean, what it is today is um, we really are making this idea of personal styling, a personalized shopping experience and making that really scalable. And so, I mean, some of the original thesis really was around kind of this marriage of both like what you can do with data and like I'm five foot two, there's all kinds of like beautiful clothes on this world that like are not going to look good on me and so um, it was this insight that I think using data to interpret and understand people and and garments and clothing is going to be helpful and actually I love Minneapolis as the example of like I feel like you could go into Dayton's and yes. like people would know you and they would know your family and you'd go into Dayton's and discover new things I miss and Dayton's. I know I miss Dayton's too it was such a great experience and the people who work there loved working there and loved helping you and Um, And there was some of this like kind of old school department store that like I wanted to bring back of just like the idea that the person that you're transacting with like knows you and knows your family Mm -hmm. and can recommend things to you. Um, And so it was kind of this marriage of like, how can you make that experience scalable? How can you do it online? And then how can you also bring in kind of the smartness of what you can learn from from data and understanding products and people and, and marry the two together? And so the original thesis was like, marrying kind of humans and data and analytics um, can help to build this personalized shopping experience that helps people to be able to find clothes that they love better and really transforms the way that people shop. And so historically, that's really all been through this, like what we call a fix of like you um, sign up, you let us know your size and style preferences. A stylist will use that great technology that we have to send you items to try on in your own home. And we've built this amazing personalization muscle to do that. And so it's kind of incredible that to this date, we've sold about $5 billion of clothes all sight unseen and that's kind of an amazing thing that no one is clicking on something adding it to their cart and buying this is all 100 of that is recommended to our clients in building that business what we realize now is that we have this amazing asset in that ability to personalize you know i think historically all of our business really has been in fixes and in the future we're excited to use that that platform in new ways. And so today we're it's it's still in a test, but we have a thing called shop your looks, which actually allows people now to add things to a cart and check out and buy. And it's been remarkably successful and also r- like radically different from regular e-commerce where we're not showing you everything we have in our inventory at any given time. We might have tens of thousands of things to show you, and we're really only showing you like 30 items mm-hmm. and then driving conversion off of that. And so it's this really radical way to think about e-commerce that's not searching and paging through you know all this stuff and filtering through all the product in the planet it's a really focused really personalized selection you know is potentially you know bringing that personal shopping experience online where instead of walking into a Dayton's and having somebody you know pick out 30 things for you that that actually could happen online in a way that actually is really compelling i think the business has always been about personalization it's always been about how do we help people to find clothes that they love better um and i think now we're you know excited to show that that can actually take You know more form factors than I think the Stitch Fix that people originally knew and loved.
1: First of all, it is really smart what you've done. And I applaud you not just for figuring it out and having this idea, but also figuring out a way to make that idea come to life. And I want to kind of get through, go through the tea leaves on that because obviously having this big grand vision and then making it into what is today a $2 billion business are two very different things. One thing I think... And I hear this almost universally from so many people, and it goes back to this idea about Dayton's and the experience. Shopping is not enjoyable anymore. I mean, there are people out there who never liked shopping, but there are a lot of people who actually liked it previously. And if you're in the store now, oftentimes they don't have the sizes or the items that you need, and it can always be ordered. But the whole point of being in the store, at least in my opinion, is so that you can try it on there and see it. But then when you're online, it's just this gigantic abyss of options. And that whole idea of discovery discovering a new brand or discovering something that is going to look great on you that you're going to feel great about. It's so much more difficult now than it used to be. Obviously, this is not the biggest problem in the world. I'm not pretending that it's like the thing, but it it's an issue. Um, and, and that's something that you guys have really thought through.
0: It is a real issue. And I would argue that it is potentially like a global issue of, I think, you know, some of the solution to, well, it's hard to find things has been like an overconsumption where people are buying all kinds of fast fashion and you're just buying things because they're cheap and not because you love them or they fit you really well. And so I think, you know, now more than ever, it's really important to be able to help people to navigate through the literally millions of things out there. Um, And jeans are a really great example where the idea of trying to find a pair of jeans By looking at pictures online is just like an enormously impossible proposition. And that's where I think being able to marry technology where we know um, we can pattern recognize between people who have bodies like yours and clients that we've served in the past to be able to better target and recommend products that are more likely to work for you. I think this is actually part of the reason that it's amazing. All the things that we buy online, like it's you know, we buy most things online at this point. Eighty percent of clothes are still bought in stores, right? Like it's amazing. Yeah, like, it's just crazy to think online has been so um, kind of like Pervasive, not good yeah. but not getting it done exactly. But do you think?
1: Do you think that's because of who's buying? Is it that the audience of people who are shopping for clothes skews older, therefore
0: there's less of a A comfort with the technology. I think originally that was true. You look at like my my sixty five year old mom in you know in outside of Minneapolis is like buying everything online, and she's um I mean she still likes going into stores too. She's like she sent me an an emoji the other day. I mean it's just (laughs) like it's amazing what um I love
1: it when my mom chooses the emojis, and I'm like, wow, mom, what what made you choose that one?
0: (laughs) I'd like to get in
1: your head and understand this. Um, okay, so back to this idea. You have this really big idea and you set out to launch. How did you put it together in the beginning? Because your background, you said it, you were you had the business background from going to business school. You had a little bit of a tech and, and math background, but building out that technology is a huge task.
0: Oh, yeah. And I was, uh, to be really clear, I was definitely not capable or like had the skill set to do that. What's kind of amazing and and even more so now than in 2011 when I started is like there's all kinds of free off the shelf things that you can use to just build a business like the URL. They just had a landing page. Yes, I think. Well, we had one name before Stitch Fix and then it was Stitch Fix and it was just a landing page that said, hey, we're we're a styling service. We're in beta. If you want to learn more, click here. And then that spit you out to a survey monkey and then you would fill out a survey monkey form that let me know like who you are, where you live, what kinds of things you were looking for. And then we basically that was kind of a wait list. And How so, did you get people to that site in the first place? Was it all friends and family? It was all friends and family. Like we had um, something like twenty nine clients, then it was thirty five clients, and it was hundred and ten clients. Those are like the month by month number of people we are adding. And it was really truly just friends and family. Of like you just blast it out to your email, post it on probably like Facebook uh-huh. at the time. Begging people to just and take just the, say, the like, survey like, monkey. You're it. Like it's so yeah.
1: but I bet okay, I have no idea if this was the case. Great idea, but I bet it was frustrating back then. You're like, why is it so hard
0: to get people to take this survey monkey but, thing? No, people what was remarkable and this is what <laughs> gave me confidence the whole time was that people actually loved taking out t- like filling out the survey. That's and then great. people would PayPal me twenty dollars and that and that twenty dollar styling fee really came from this early days of like I didn't want to just blindly send somebody that I didn't know clothes. I didn't know that I would ever get oh, yeah. them back. Right. And so I figured like if someone is willing to PayPal me $20, they're probably not going to steal from me. <laughs> and so um, and so I would have people PayPal me $20. And so for six months, I mean, we probably shipped a couple thousand fixes without even having a website. And so people would, no joke, people would write down their credit card number. They're like, I'd rather give you my credit card number than PayPal you. And so in the return Like shipment, they would write down their credit card number on a piece of paper, and then I would type that into like our Braintree account and shred it. Like that's when I would work. That's extremely when I would do like I would pull all nighters (laughs) in the early days, like doing things like that of like manual data entry because we didn't have a website. But the flip side was that it made it even more compelling because it was like if clients are willing to put up with this crazy purchase funnel that is super manual and ridiculous. And if people are, imagine if we had a website, like how much better this whole experience would be and how many more people would want to try it. And so, you know, I think, and you can build things in this really scrappy way to be able to show that there's product market fit, to be able to show that there is somebody out there that wants your product. And it's such an incredible thing, I think, with the democratization of the internet now. And, you know, you see influencers who can build $100,000, million dollar businesses. Is because you can do now you can do Shopify you can do you know there's all kinds of payment processing that's a lot easier and so um, it's just like incredible now that there are so many tools that make it so that it's much easier today to build that you know to build a business from zero to a hundred thousand or zero to a million dollars um, than it was 10 15 years ago what was the biggest challenge back then and what is the biggest challenge today hear
1: more from Katrina Lake after a word from our sponsor What was the biggest challenge back then and what is the biggest challenge today?
0: One of the biggest challenges, hiring is just always, you know, consistently even then people and you can have the most amazing idea in the world, but at the end of the day, like it's up to you and your team and your ability to create a vision and motivate your team for that idea to come to life. And, um, you know, in those early days, I was really lucky to have two people who are still on my team of Mike Smith, who had been the COO of Walmart.com. And he joined about a year in and Eric Colson, who ran all of algorithms and analytics at Netflix, who also joined in about the first year or so. Did you kind of target
1: them given their backgrounds and think like this, this is the team I need in place to execute this vision?
0: I targeted a bunch of people that I was like, I'd love to have a chance to meet. And mm-hmm. then, um, and, you know, in both of these cases, luckily, I think with Mike, he was actively looking and this was kind of the right type of opportunity he was looking for. And with Eric, we kind of like reeled him in over time of like, first, I was like, will you take a meeting with me? He lived in Los Altos, but he was luckily going to a Giants game and was coming up <laughs> to the city. And so I had like a drink with him and then convinced him to be an advisor and then Gradually got him more and more interested. And he was like, can I have a Stitch Fix email address? Can I have a Stitch Fix machine? Can I have periodic data dumps? Did you give him the, the Stitch Fix email address right away? Oh, of course. Right okay. Yes. I was like, <laughs> oh, sure. Be my guest. Um, and he just got so interested in kind of the possibility with all of the data. My point is more in the early days, like recruiting was really It was really what was going to make the difference of like, we're going to get to a billion dollars or not being able to have people on the team that had been to a billion dollars before that could understand how do you build and operate a billion dollar business? Like I had no idea. I was literally like shipping boxes on Monday, like taping boxes shut, like steaming clothes on my own. I'd never touched anything close to a billion dollars, right? And so to be able to be surrounded by people who had seen that and knew how to build that was super valuable. And then even today, you know, today we're doing a lot of crazy, interesting things with our business model. and doing things in a different way. And so much of our future is dependent on our people and our talent and our ability to recruit um, the best talent to be able to help us to get to to where we know we can go. I mean, raising money, we can talk about raising money. Raising money was really like a challenge where that was probably more of a life or death situation that we had in the early days. Tell me about that. I mean, raising money for this business has never been easy. Even the IPO, honestly, wasn't easy. And Because I, of who the investors are? Who I would... think that plays a part in it. Certainly in the early stages, it played a big part in it. You know, I think there's been a lot of attention on this now, and I think there's been some change. But The idea that venture, 2% of venture goes to women, essentially. It, exactly. When I was raising money, it was like 96% of venture investors are men. And even if you, and if you looked at like dollars deployed, I'll bet the numbers were even worse. I'll bet it was like 98% or even more because, you know, a lot of times you would have a venture partner in quotes who was a woman who actually, you know, didn't have as much influence in the partnership as a lot of the men did. And so the result of that was that it was really, it was a lot harder for me to get people excited about the business. And um, like our numbers were amazing. Like we had a great team. We got to a lot of this like final round song and dance with venture investors. And then, at the very end I think it was just you know, and I had one venture investor who told me, and I'm grateful he did. And he and he was just like, "Look, I love my job. Like, I I get to take one or two board seats a year, and I want to take board seats where I feel like a real connection to the business. I wake mm. up thinking about it, and where I feel like I can really add value to you as a board member, and that you, and I can be one of your most trusted, most value add board members." And he was like, "I just feel like I can't wake up in the morning thinking about women's dresses. You know, now we have men's and kids, but at the time we only had women's. Yes. Um. And he was like, "I feel like I." can't wake up in the morning thinking about women's dresses and I just I feel like I'm not going to be able to add a lot of value to you as a board member and it's just heartbreaking because I understand that deeply you mentioned the boards that I'm on, I'm on those boards because I like have a connection with a founder because I have a connection with the business and I really love the business. And you know, I've said no to boards where I haven't felt a connection to the business, right? And so like I want him to love his job and I want him to be able to do that. But at the same time, when everybody making those decisions is kind of looking at a similar, you know, kind of reference point. Then like, I remember there was like a T-Ball app that got funded at the time that I was trying to fundraise. And it was so frustrating. I'm like, how big of a market can like managing your T-Ball league be? Oh my god! But it's like, you know, the, that was a more understood problem set than the like, how do you find jeans that fit you well? How do you... Someone wanted to
1: wake up every day thinking about T-Ball.
0: Right. Can you believe? That's really sad. It was so frustrating. It's like it had group ordering If T-ball t-shirts or uniforms or whatever. I was like, "Oh, man." But but
1: so, the but actually one thing I appreciate about you sharing that anecdote is that I think that it defines the problem more clearly in some ways than what we've heard What I've heard in these conversations previously, I don't mean to say people haven't said it, this idea that people who take board seats, they have to love the business and they have to be really excited about it, like the boards that you're on with Glossier and Grubhub. That creates complexity, I think, in solving this issue. Right. And that's
0: and that I think was unless a part... more
1: women and minorities have access to capital and are at the top of these companies and are partners within and are making the decisions. Exactly.
0: And I think that's the part that is so hard is that every person like all the the biases really created at the margin on decisions like these. Like nobody, but I, I mean, very few people are out there saying like. I want a world where only white men are ruling. Like no one is actually like actively trying to do that, but at the margin where it's like, okay, well, there's this one guy and we have a lot in common and I really love spending time with him and we can go get beers all the time and talk about the business together. Or there's this, woman or, you know, person of color or whatever, like at that margin, like it's a lot easier and more comfortable to say yes to the thing that's more comfortable. And so that's how the bias gets propagated. And the real the real problem is that there's just like the dollars deployed, the people in power, the people with influence um, all kind of look similar. And then it just kind of is the self-propagating thing and especially in venture. And when your starting point is 96% of people are men like that's a really tough starting point and you know i think we're starting to see um you know and boards as an example yes. and i think the california legislation has a lot had a lot to do with this you are starting to see people focus more on diversity in boards and you are seeing the management teams um as people are building out their management teams actively trying to focus more on diversity but you know some of these industries and venture is one of those it's really really a slow cycle and it's really hard to change so you were the youngest woman to take a company public, 2017,
1: you were 34 years old. Obviously, no matter who you are, there's a huge amount riding on that IPO. When you when you make a decision to take a company public, there's a huge amount riding. What were you thinking in that run up to going
0: public? If I'm totally honest with you, I had no time to think about the gravity of the situation running up to it. Honestly, um, you know, we had. I would say, like, probably a year or two, probably two years even before that, it was pretty clear that this company should go public. Where what made it clear that it should go we public? We were profitable. We've been profitable since 2014. We <laughs> that hasn't a- stopped a lot of companies, Katrina. <laughs> well, that's Petrina, true. <laughs> from going <home. laughs> Um But you had been profitable we, for how long? When we've you- been profitable. We have been profitable since 2014. And, um, and we had really... Aggressive revenue trajectories, where we had done seven hundred, we'd done seven hundred million, it was nine hundred million, it was over a billion. And the last two years, we've grown at twenty six percent year over year on a very large base. Um, and so it was clear that we could be public, and we, um, and it felt like we should be public. We still had a ton of future opportunity ahead. Some of what we talked about recently with the with the um, product innovation. Then it was really a question of when. And I think for me, when was like, first of all, it was in between my two kids. Right. So there was like a personal element of this of like I had. Did you time it? I in some way it had to be timed this way. I mean, I came back from maternity leave in for my first kid in January and we started working on the IPO. And so, um, you know, it couldn't really happen while I was out on mat leave. And it you know, we did probably a little bit of prep before. And so, I mean, honestly, like that was actually part of the timing. Um, and then part of the timing was also just the predictability of the business. And we wanted to be at a place where we felt like the, the business was predictable. And, um, you know, in the crazy growth rate years, like honestly, the business just wasn't predictable enough for us to be able to feel like we could with confidence go out and tell shareholders like, this is what you can expect. Mm-hmm. And so once we kind of got to the point where we felt like the business was more predictable, we had more control over the business, um, then it felt like kind of the right time. And so, the weeks leading up to it, I mean, it was you know there's a lot of work going into it, and you're you're spending a lot of time on the road um telling the story to investors and um and so i I don't think I really had the time to really appreciate the gravity of what that moment would mean for me and for my family and for and for people out there seeing it and um and it was really hard like it wasn't a raw raw like experience. It was, we had a lot of skeptical investors. People were hearing the story for the first time. They were meeting me for the first time. Um, And so, you know, by the time we got to the IPO day, like, I was tired. Um, I my it's funny how weird This has also not been shared publicly, but my son had hand, foot, and mouth disease. It turns out, oh and goodness. I like brought him to the IPO. And did he, he was, give it to everybody? <laughs> no, he didn't.
1: But I didn't. <laughs> Sorry really, for I laughing. I mean,
0: it was my first kid. I didn't know it was oh so contagious, gosh. and so <laughs> I. Um, <laughs> He was kind of lethargic and a little feverish, oh, no. and and had blisters on his hands and feet. Oh, no. um, but, he's okay
1: now. That's the only oh, reason he's we're totally fine. And,
0: and I think he was like, I think he had a pretty mild case of it. Um, <laughs> but we were just, you know, it was just really busy. And but that day did feel like I got that day felt like it moved a little bit in slow motion, and yeah. I did get to appreciate that day. Um, you know just how much had gone into it, and to have mm-hmm. my son and to have my husband there with me. Um, like in the time of Stitch Fix, I went from being single to being married to having a kid, and so you know they they had been so much a part of that journey and that story. Um, and um, and it just you know I think it was it was a day that felt really. Proud, I guess is the yeah. right word, where we had a lot of doubters, we still do, but we had a lot of doubters along the way. There were, you know, probably fifty venture investors who'd said no to us. And so um to be able to feel like, you know, you kind of overcame yes. odds. I'm sure um, there were some
1: pictures in your head of the faces of the people who had said <laughs> no, and it's like day
0: one am. <laughs> it's big mistake. But it, Huge. Gave me, it gave me a lot of motivation. And, yes. you know, I think it's um, I kind of like being the underdog and I like being underestimated. Honestly, I think it's yeah. like I think it's a lot easier to be underestimated and feel like you have fight and grit and you can prove yourself um, versus I think it's actually harder to be that like overvalued. Everybody expects everything from you place. And so Anyway, for all those reasons, it definitely was um, It was a very meaningful day.
1: Amazon is clearly, for all retail, this sort of 800-pound gorilla. But I wonder, from your vantage point, do you see them as an eventual partner of yours, or do you see them as the competition?
0: I mean, it's impossible to ignore Amazon. They've done a lot of incredible things in, um, in e-commerce in general. You know, for us, like, we're... Solely focused on personalization, and if you know, if Amazon is the everything store, like we are in some ways almost the antithesis of that. Like Mm -hmm. in our fixes, we're showing you five things, like not millions of things, five things to shop from. And even in our kind of evolved product, we're showing you thirty things to shop from. And so it's kind of the opposite of like, oh, we we sell everything on the planet. I think our focus on personalization, our focus on apparel, our focus on recommendations at the core of what we do is um, is what's going to differentiate us, and we. We sell jeans really well. We sell work well. We sell dresses really well. We sell all kinds of products that people have had a really hard time selling in e-commerce really well. And, you know, we're really proud of that as a sustainable advantage.
1: How do you think of being a public CEO versus when you were the CEO and founder of a private company? How, How much has your life and the job changed as a result of that?
0: It's changed quite a bit. You know, everything that we do is more public. Um, and you know things feel a little bit like they have higher stakes. Like as much as I think it's very rewarding to feel like we are as a publicly traded company, we have um, you know mom and pop investors. We have, I mean, I have pension had people. Funds. We have pension funds. And I have literally 401ks. had. I've had people like at the grocery store tell me that they bought my stock. <laughs> and so there's an element of that that feels really rewarding, and there's an element of it that makes it feel really um, just. Real and high stakes. And so, um, like I feel a really deep obligation to all of the people that have. Um, bought our stock and you know we part of being profitable in 2014 was that we um, had a lot of hard it, we, it was very hard to raise money and so we've always treated every dollar that we have really preciously so there's a lot of it that feels higher stakes um, i also feel like i've learned so much about the value of communications as an example internal and external communications and um, helping people to understand our longer term narrative um, i've learned so much about just value creation of like all these classes that i took in business school around like dcf models and how do people value companies and value stocks and and now i'm like really learning that firsthand and so a lot of what i love about my work is that i get to be on this constant steep learning curve and um it's definitely continued to be that way as a public company and so um you know it's definitely there's good times and bad times it's hard when you know the everything being very public means that like there, the narrative that's public isn't always the narrative that's internal. And it's hard to control that. And, you know, it's hard to control the stock price, certainly hard to control it in the short term. And so, um, you know, it comes with a lot more kind of sleepless nights. But I think in the end, it's worth it. And um, if I've learned so much. And I think the company is really better off for it.
1: What do you think retail looks like 10 years from now? How much will it resemble
0: what it is today? That's such a good question. Um, The retail world just has to be more personalized in the future. And like it just has to. The idea that you go onto a shop floor and you're sifting through racks, just the randomness of that, of like just like whatever happens to be on the floor and maybe they happen to have your size, like there's just no way that that is the future. But
1: for all, I guess part of the reason I pose this question is that for all of the disruption I don't actually see in, in the in store experience, I don't see that much different. Like, I totally you agree. can give me a glass of champagne or maybe even a manicure and bring up some new designers on the shop room floor, but it's not that different from what it used to be. It's just a little less convenient.
0: Right. I completely agree. And I mean, the reason this question is so hard is that 10 years ago, I thought the world would be dramatically different. Right. Like 10 years ago, I thought that the brick and mortar retail experience would be like you walk into a store. you They already know that you're in there. So you're logged in and then, you know, you can go and you can, you know. Engage with like a, that there would be no racks of clothes. It mm-hmm. would all be like a museum that mm-hmm. you would be able to see like uh, mannequins in a cocktail party, mannequins doing whatever. And that you could literally just like engage with the mannequins and be like, I like this, I like this, I like that, and kind of swipe your phone or something. You'd show up at a dressing room. It would say like, Hi, Rebecca, like here are the things that you swiped and here are some recommendations of things that would go with it. Like this is what I imagine that an in store experience would look like today, 10 years ago. And that's not even close to what we have today. I think the world has been much slower to evolve in apparel retail than I would have hoped. Um, And I think we can be a big part of what's driving that forward. And I think in our world, if we can show that like, you know, culling down to 30 pieces is going to be a much better e-commerce apparel experience, then I think we're really showing what personalization can look like. And I think that people – Theoretically, no. I mean, one of Nike's top five initiatives, one of them is personalization. I think people know that it's really important. And intuitively, like if you could imagine like going to a website and it's only going to show things that go well with things in your closet Mm -hmm. or things that you have a high likelihood of liking, like everybody, 100% of Like 100% of the market would be happier if the world was more personalized. And so the question is, like, how does that come to life? How do people bring that to life, whether it's in stores or in e-commerce? And and we're really excited to be at the forefront of that.
1: So what's the worst advice you've received in your career?
0: You know, it's funny because I was thinking about this question knowing that you asked this. (laughs) I used to say this was some of the best advice that I got, and my mind has changed on it. There was a CEO who – somebody who had also founded a company who gave me this advice that like as a CEO, your life is crazy ups and downs of just like one day is the best day ever and the next day is the worst day ever. And and he, his advice was like don't bring your team along on it. Just like you're up and to the right. Like your team doesn't need to no. know. And I think that was generally some good advice. But I'm, I'm now backtracking on it because I really think that some of the best bonding that I've had with the team, some of the way that I've built the most trust trust. trust with my team is actually bringing them in in those like vulnerable moments. And in the I like the IPO is a good example of, you know, we were gonna price below the range and our bankers were like, well, you guys don't have to go now if you don't want to, you could postpone it. And we're like, you know, I mean, it felt like that's a big thing. And we were like, we're not going to postpone it. We're just going to go. We don't care if we price below the range. But I remember like me and my CFO, my COO uh, and we were in, um, I think we were in Denver and like we were in a hotel and we got all the little half bottles of wine and like poured <laughs> them into like the coffee cups in the hotel room. It's <laughs> like a scene from a movie. It really was. And we because we were going to have to call the rest of the management team because we were ahead. So they it was a 3 p.m. call Pacific, 5 p.m. for us in Denver. And so um, and we were going to have to call them and say like we're going to after price below little range. And so we literally poured ourselves our little like pity glasses of wine and coffee cups and um and called the team. And I remember like I was holding back tears. I was like, how am I gonna tell them Like they're going to be so disappointed after all this, after all of this, like their stock options are, you know, I don't know if they're underwater or close to underwater. This isn't what they expected. And and it wasn't and the team wasn't sad and they weren't disappointed. And it was really like they provided so much energy to me if they felt like that's fine. If the market doesn't value us today, like we'll show them it's fine. We can be a show me stock. We'll like, you know, we'll prove it to them. I think being able to share some of that vulnerability and having them feel like they're supporting me. And also I think feeling like we are all in it together Mm -hmm. was such an important built like bonding moment for us and yeah. so you know i think now i err more on the side of like you you're, you're going to have crazy ups and downs and i think you know being able to share authentically with your team about where you are and you know not to the point where you want to freak them out but at least like helping them to understand yeah. your journey and be and feel like they're part of it i think is is really valuable um kind of experience for them mm-hmm. i
1: i really agree and i really respect you for sharing that it's so tough Right now in this world where you, I I mean, in order to build camaraderie, in order to build trust, in order to build loyalty, you have to expose yourself, in my opinion, a little bit. And if you don't have any bruises or real honest battle scars, it's very hard for people to fully relate to you. At the same time, once those battle scars or bruises are potentially shared outside of the tent... Bad things can happen.
0: Yeah. And, and it's uncomfortable. Yeah.
1: And I I mean, my hope, I guess, for people in your role, for people in mine, for, for all of us, frankly, is that we sort of cut everyone a little bit of slack in for this sure. world going forward, because I just don't see what the end game is if there's no room for
0: that anymore. And I mean, no one's perfect. And it's just, you know, it's unrealistic to have those expectations of even our our greatest leaders. No, I totally agree with you. And and I hope and I, I do think leaders are starting to understand this and I think you're seeing a lot more authenticity and um and even I mean it's silly, but I really think like things like Instagram and you know and Snapchat and just like kind of the real time social media um world actually has helped in the stories as opposed yeah, to like, like the stories. perfect yes, Instagram feed. for <laughs> sure in stories. Um but I think in some ways it's actually helped to um you know to demystify and to make um, to make people a little bit more accessible, mm-hmm. I don't know. So I, I, you know, I'm hopeful that that things are changing.
1: As am I, Katrina Lake. This was a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Of course, thank you for having me. Okay, it's the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's entrepreneur is Sarah Bayet. She's the founder of Kacheco Goods. Kacheco means laughter in Swahili, and Sarah's company is a social impact jewelry business that provides scholarships for under-resourced children. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Sarah Baia, founder and owner of Kacheco Goods, a social impact jewelry brand based here in DC. One of the toughest obstacles I had to overcome was in the beginning. On the day of my first metalsmithing class was also the day that my father passed away. So not only dealing with the challenges of a new small business, learning a new skill set, working with small capital, acquiring new customers, but also dealing with a family loss. It was super tough. I leaned on my husband, my family, friends, and church for emotional support and gave myself time to heal and grieve. And then I also put my head down and started working really hard on it day in, day out, remembering the why. Five years later, we are a six-figure business. We have a beautiful studio and shop here in D.C., a small team, and I have a baby on the way. So there's been a
0: lot of healing, and I'm grateful for all the lessons learned along this journey.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And congratulations to you on what you're building. Congratulations on being this week's entrepreneur. I want to wish you continued success. And thank you to Liz Overman for the nomination. Remember, listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Sarah. If you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur or you want to submit those nominations, please do so at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. You can send me career questions there. We love hearing from you. And finally, a shout out to the team who helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor Brittany Martinez, research assistant Lane Wynn. Thank you, ABC Audio, and we'll see all of you here next week.